Well, let's remain standing as we hear the word of the Lord from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed with, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Sorry, you may be seated. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, Gary, you know that's me. I'm, I'm here for the big entrance. <laughs> yeah, I'm all about, all about the big entrance. Thank you, thank you. Um, grab your Bibles, turn to First Peter, and we'll, we'll be looking at those verses on the second, sort of the second half of chapter one. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would uh, illumine our minds and our hearts Make it clear to us what you're saying, um, that we might know you and love you uh, more this day. And we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. So we've been going through First Peter the last few weeks. Um, this is week four. And just to kind of review where we've been, Peter is writing this letter to this group of Gentile Christians, sort of in modern-day Turkey. Um, they're beginning to experience some persecution, and so he writes his letter, and he starts out with this greeting where he's like, hey, I know that you all are feeling like strangers in the world, but then he goes on and he spends, and the whole verses 4 to uh, 12 are all, it's just two sentences where he's sort of describing and explaining what it is that, restating what it is that Christians believe. This is why I'm writing to you, this is what you believe, this is who we are as these people that know and believe that Jesus has redeemed us and restored us and that we have this future hope. And so he states that. And then he gets to today's verse, which is verse 13, and he says that lovely word that we all know and, and love, which is therefore. Um, so it's an important word, right? If we, don't, if we don't see what we've just read, if we don't remember what we've just seen before this, then we're not going to have any idea what this therefore is therefore, as the little saying goes. So he says, therefore... And then he goes on to explain everything that comes after the rest of the letter is therefore what comes before the therefore, right? The, these first verses, the first verses of chapter one are explaining this is what the gospel is, this is our hope, therefore, right? And so uh, one of the, uh, Tim Chester, I've quoted him a couple times, he wrote Everyday Church, says, at a number of key moments, Peter says therefore in a way that turns identity into action, imperatives, this is true, into, or indicatives, what is true, into imperatives, this is what to do. And so this is the corner that we're turning. Here's all the stuff that's true in chapter one. Now I'm going to turn the corner and tell you some things that we're supposed to be and do. And the next sentence is really interesting. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, 
and being sober-minded. Now, the literal Greek for preparing your minds for action is this very interesting phrase that says, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. It's referring to an Old Testament way of thinking where um, in, in sort of Old Testament days, Judaism, you had these like long robes that you would wear. And when things got serious, when you needed to go somewhere or do something, the phrase was to gird up your loins. And what would happen is you would take your, like the bottoms of your robe and you would tuck them into the belt so that you could run and not trip and fall. So it's literally... Uh, what, what is being said here, and Peter's kind of capturing that image from the Old Testament, gathering up your, your, kind of, your robes and tucking them in. So we don't wear robes. So this is like if you're about to wash the dishes, that would be like the light version, or if you're out and you're about to dig a trench, or you would roll up your sleeves. That's what Peter's saying. So to roll up the sleeves of your mind. In other words, I just told you this beautiful gospel truth, therefore, roll up your sleeves. Okay, like, Gird up your loins, get ready to go. And it's not just to do that, but of, of your mind, being sober-minded is saying there's going to be some thought that has to be involved here. So we can't just check the box and be like, hey, we have hope, now we're good, now moving on. That's, he wouldn't write the rest of the letter if it, if it was for that. So he says, hey, this is the gospel truth now. There's some things we need to get busy doing. Okay? And as he launches into the rest of the letter, I, I told you last week, we're going to see a number of things in this first in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that are the identity of the church. Right? There's a lot, there's 970-something churches in Mecklenburg County, more in Union County, lots and lots of churches. Most of us, we drive around, you drive from here to work, you pass however many churches, 12, 15, 18, there's churches everywhere. And I think there's some confusion on what the church is. What, what does it mean to be a church? What is the church supposed to be doing? Why are there churches at all? And this is what Peter is about to help them understand, that there's this rolling up the sleeves and getting busy being a church. And this is partially why, why we chose First Peter to look at here, because as a new church, we really need to make sure we understand who we are and what we're here for. So we're going to see four identities over the next week, over the next four weeks. Today is, we're going to see that the church is a family. And we'll get, that's where we're going to dive in. Next week, we'll see that the church is a community. Two weeks from now, we'll see that church is a temple, and the last one we'll see is that the church is a witness. Family, community, temple, witness, we're going to look at all four of those uh, pulling out, and there's more that are buried in there, but those are the big four that we're going to look at over the next four weeks. So let's dive into this section and look at the church as a family, starting in verse uh, 14. I'm going to read 14 to 17 again, just so we can look at it. He writes, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. There's a lot to unpack there, but what I want to call your attention to most is the words that he uses for God and the words that he uses for us. He says, as obedient children, obedient children. And then two verses later, he says, if you call on him as father. He's setting up this identity that as a church, as people who believe in this hope that he just described, that we are in a relationship with God of father and children. Father and children. We are in a specific kind of family. 
So you think about what it means to be part of your family. I think about what it means to be part of my family. We've got traditions, we've got customs, we've got sort of ways that we act. Um, there's this one that freaks my wife out, is that my family has a lot of Christmas traditions. And so there's this one little um, stuffed moose that was always in the Christmas decorations. And somewhere when I was a kid, my dad started taking that moose and putting it around the house. Like, he would stick it on the fan, he'd put it on top of a light. My mom hated it. So now, part of my family's tradition and custom is that Christmas time, anytime the Christmas decorations are out, the moose is always like changing, changing locations and, and being stuck places. That there's this sort of uniqueness to my family that you wouldn't know unless you were part of it. It's like a distinctive way of living that sometimes is super important, sometimes it's a moose that's stuck on places around the house. Um, but that there's this set of traditions, there's this way of life that goes with being part of the family. And that's why Peter is calling God father and calling us children. He's saying that when you believe that hope, you don't just believe that hope and then move on. You move into this family that has this set of, of traditions and customs and a way of life that's connected to God. That God's way of life is the thing that we are called into. So he uses this word, it's a really interesting word, you see it twice, at least in the ESV, uh, called conduct. Um, the word, the actual word there occurs 13 times in the New Testament, and eight of them are used by Peter. And when we think of conduct, at least when I think of conduct, I think of like um, things that are right and wrong. Like do, the, do, do right things, don't do wrong, conduct yourselves rightly, and we think of morality and ethics. But in the Greek, the word there is actually much more of this, it's a way of life word. It's how you go about living your life. It's not just specific right and wrong, but like the entire trajectory, the things that animate you, your habits, it's a way of life. And so when he says, um, where, does, where does he say it? But he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. He's not just saying, when it comes to right and wrong, do right and don't do wrong. He's saying, in all that you do, do it in such a way that you are in line with God's way of life. That your entire life is oriented around this way of life that God has set out for you. And here's where we see, where we talked about last week, the, the Old Testament, and he, and he quotes from Leviticus 11.24, which is this verse that says, so you be holy as I am holy. The entire book of Leviticus has that five or six times where God says, hey, as I am holy, you be holy. Now, when we think of holiness, again, we kind of in the same way we think of conduct, we think of do more right. If you're going to be holy, you're going to do more right things and do less wrong things. And when we approach, if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, you know it's a very difficult book for us to understand, right? It feels really tedious and boring. It feels like a lot of rules. And when we approach Leviticus, we go into Leviticus and we're like, okay, I'm going to read this book and I'm going to try to figure out how to do right things and how to not do wrong things. You get to the end of Leviticus and you're like, I have no idea what this is even about. It's like so confusing. Because Leviticus is not a book about morality. Leviticus is a book about God's way of life for Israel in order that their family would be distinctive and set apart from the world. The word holy means set apart, means distinctive, unique. And what God wanted for Israel was he wanted them to live their life, their entire life, their entire way of life was to be distinct apart from the world a unique way of life. And so when you read Leviticus, you see all these different things about food regulations, and we read them and we get so confused because we're trying to understand them as moral commands, but they're not moral commands. They're setting up a way of life for Israel. One of the commentators says 
this in moving from Leviticus to the church. It says, Christians are no less God's people than ancient Israel. And we're no less accountable to God than Israel was. But our holiness is expressed in ways that are appropriate to our historical moment. What he's saying is, we read Leviticus, it's very specific to Israel and how Israel is going to be set apart. When we read the New Testament, we see the application of how Christians ought to be set apart. How Christians ought to be in God's family, living in, with God's way of life, with God's conduct. So, when we read, when we read this, when Peter writes this, he's, he's visualizing the church and churches as like little microcosms of God's family. Where there's, a, where there's a specific way of life and there's a specific kind of conduct that's happening that sets them apart from the rest of the world. You, if you get, um, when you get married, you go into a new family. This is why the moose freaks my wife out. You go into a new family, there's a set of new customs, there's a set of new things you have to learn and do and become. Um, that's the way that God, that's the way Peter sees Christ, when you become a Christian, you don't just assent to believe in the hope, you actually embrace an entirely different way of life. A way of life that's defined by your father, by God. And that's what he's saying. And here's the thing, here's how this applies to the church, is that the church is the community where that way of life is actually lived out. That this community, our community, our, us as a group of people, our job, our identity, is to live out the way of life that God says is his way of life. This community is where God's way of life is lived out. This is, we shouldn't reduce this to a set of moral commands. The church is a place where a specific morality happens. That's true. There's a specific morality that God asks us to follow. But so often our conduct and holiness gets, re gets reduced to individually trying to do more right and do less wrong. And Peter's saying, no, the church is a family where together we live out God's way of life together in everything that we do. It's holistic. It's all-encompassing. Now, if you hear that description of the church, and as I, as I was studying and reading this, I thought to myself, that does not sound like a lot of the way that I've experienced church. Maybe it doesn't, it doesn't sound probably to you like, does the church sound to you like a place where you've experienced this great, holistic way of life with other people? We do it wrong a lot. So I want to call attention, and I think Peter subtly pull, points to these two things, two ways that we often get this wrong. How do we do this wrong? The first way is that we don't fully embrace our change of identity. Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your ignorance. So he says, as obedient children, it is possible to still conform to your former way of life. Just because you raise your hand and say, I'm a Christian, just because you raise your hand and get in the, in the waters of baptism, and just because you come to church, doesn't mean that you've embraced a change of identity. Doesn't mean you've embraced that way of life, that family way of life. Um, without being uh, political about this, I think it's, it's very obvious. The most obvious example in our culture right now of someone who has chosen to kind of say they're a Christian and yet not embrace the way of life is our president. Right, you've seen him stand up a number of times. He actually said whatever it was during his campaign. I'm the best Christian you've ever seen. And you read 24 hours of his Twitter, and you're like, that doesn't sound a whole lot like God's family's way of life. There's this dissonance 
because you can claim to be part of the family but not embrace the way of life. And our culture, I mentioned this last week, but our idea of identity is that my identity is kind of a result of just my decisions, whoever I want to be. And so often what we see, one of the ways that Christians, that we get this wrong, is we use, instead of taking on a new family identity, we keep our old family identity and integrate the things of God into it. Like, becoming a Christian means becoming the new improved me, instead of joining an entirely different family, putting off the old and putting on the new. We use it as kind of a way to, like, improve our, our kind of image. I, th- I was thinking about this, and I realized... Um, I like to go hiking, and so I have a couple of, like, um, outdoorsman stickers on the back of my car, like Pisgah National Forest, and I had an REI sticker. Like, I put those things on there, not because I'm really, like, an outdoorsman, but because I want you to think that I'm an outdoorsman, <laughs> right? Like, that, that outdoorsman-ness, like, improves my identity and standing in your eyes, or I'm, I'm, tr- I'm hoping it does. But I don't, I don't really, I'm not an outdoorsman. I go backpacking like once a year, right? But I can put those stickers on my car and I'm expressing my identity in certain ways and I'm cultivating a certain image and that's what we do with Christianity. Instead of embracing, like if I was gonna embrace the outdoorsman life, I would go to the Appalachian Trail for four months, right? If, if you've ever been to REI, like you go to, you go to Sports Authority or whatever and you, talk to the, you go into the camping session and you need help so the, the employee comes over, like that employee is not an outdoorsman. Okay, I don't know if you've ever asked for help at Academy or whatever, Dicks. But you go to REI, those people's identity, like they only hire people who are actually outdoors people. There's an identity, there's a family image, a resemblance between the people who work there because they actually are what they're doing. Just showing up and doing Christian things, just like me going into the woods doesn't make me an outdoorsman. Showing up and doing Christian things doesn't make us part of the family. And this is one of the reasons why we as a church get we get our identity wrong because we are trying to use Christian things to improve our own identity instead of fully embracing the family identity of God. Does that make sense? We see it all over the place. And so instead of embracing an identity change, we actually, um, we're just putting on Christian things without changing it inside. And, And Peter's even saying, it's possible to be in the family and still act like that. Don't be in the family. Don't be obedient children and conform. Once you're obedient children, do the things. Be the kind of person that you're called to be. So the first way that we get it wrong is by we don't embrace our identity change, and so therefore we're not holy. We're not set apart. We're not actually different. And the world sees that. The other way that we get it wrong is the complete, seems like the complete opposite, and that's that we embrace our new identity, but we do it in the wrong way. All right, you go out here, on the street, go to Matthews, go to Uptown Charlotte and say, hey, what do you, uh, just walk up to a random person, hey, tell me what you think about Christians. You're going to get a lot of, um, you're going to get a lot of negative answers. A lot of negative answers. Because what we do sometimes is we put on this new identity and then we wear it as a badge of honor. Like we've embraced it and we're doing it. We're living, we're living this new way of life, but we, we lord it over other people. We think that now that we're in the family that we deserve to be in the family. We sort of start drawing boundary markers, like holiness boundary markers. Here's the marker. You can't come in here unless you, you live up to my standard. 
and we wear this new way of life, this new identity that God has called us to, we wear it as a badge of honor of ourselves. I think of um, like Mark 8, which is the story of the, the woman caught in adultery. And the Pharisees have come up to her, and they're about to stone her. Because they're in, they got the way of life, and she doesn't, so they're going to put her out. And what does Jesus say? He comes and throws them out. Because that's not the way of, the way of life is not to draw boundary markers. <laughs> to put where our holiness, our set-apartness, our distinctness as a badge of honor that pushes other people away. And yet this is what the church does so often. We take on a negative and hostile and sort of condescending view of the people around us. And Peter Peter sees that, and he says, be holy as I am holy. God's holiness, God's set-apartness doesn't push people away. It moves towards other people. It draws them into the family. So the church makes two mistakes a lot of times. We don't embrace our identity so that we don't become holy and different, or we become different, but we become different in the wrong way. We're holy, but we're not holy like God is holy. I don't know if those two things ring true with you, but I find myself in both of those camps at times where I'm, where I'm using Christian things to build myself up, to make myself feel good without actually embracing the way of life, or I'm using Christian things and language and ideas to push people away. So how do we avoid those two errors? How do we actually be the obedient children that we're called to be? Let's continue in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct, there it is, conduct yourselves, have the way of life that is characterized by fear throughout the time of your exile. And here's where he explains. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The way to avoid those errors is to realize that this holiness, any distinction that we have, any way of life difference that we have, is something that we've received from God. That we were ransomed from our former feudal way. So if we understand that our former way is feudal, then we're going to put it off. This is, helps us avoid error number one, where we like try and keep one foot in both camps. Try and kind of put the good stuff of Christianity on while we keep our arms locked around the other stuff that we like. So no, that's futile, so you're supposed to put that off. But as you put that off, it's because you were ransomed, bought by the precious blood of Christ. And that helps us avoid error number two. We don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to have received grace. We don't deserve to understand and know and be able to live in that hope and grace that God gives us. That's because God did something on our behalf. That because of the blood of Christ that we have been purchased, you see Peter go right back to the gospel as the motivation for how to live. Knowing that we, we have been redeemed and bought by Christ. So he says, interestingly, in verse 17, that we're supposed to live in a way that's characterized by fear, by him who judges impartially. There's a lot of people, a lot of 
uh, debate on what this is supposed to mean, about what does he mean by we're supposed to live in fear. And I really think that given the context of the family analogy, he's saying just like a child, just like my child has a, a healthy fear of me as his father, if we see God as father and we understand that he's the father and we're the child, there's a fear and a reverence that develops there. Not like when, when my son disobeys again, he's fearful not that I'm going to throw him out of my house and cease to be his father. He's fearful that I'm going to discipline him because his deeds matter. And so knowing that God is our father, we can pursue holiness, pursue that way of life in, with this motivation of knowing that Jesus bought us and God is our father, but also understanding that God cares about our engagement with that, that it matters that we're different. Can't just sit back and be like, hey, I was ransomed. It's all good. That's error number one. That's, not, that's ceasing to actually become different. So there's this familial fear of, of God that's it's at, just as you would fear your father, knowing that he loves you and cares for you. So as we think about a new way of life, be, being a family, I just want to reiterate, because I've, I've wrestled with this so often. In my, uh, I grew up in a Christian church, and I was taught about Christ from an early age, and yet I still, by the time I went to college, I still had this primarily sort of moral understanding of holiness, where holiness gets reduced to just do less, do more right, do less wrong. And while God cares about ethics and morality, there, that's like the icing on the cake. The, the, the substance of the cake is this changed way of life, where everything that we do is different, where we have a different family and a different father and a different fear, all of these things because we're in, we have a different identity. So as a church, we are the community that's called to practice that life, a different way of life. Not in order to be different, but because we have a different father. We've been called out of the way of life that we see people around us living that is, as Peter calls it, um, living in ignorance, ignorance of the hope of God. So um, I'm going to recommend this book to you. It's called Disruptive Witness by Alan Noble. He's at, I think he's professor at Oklahoma Baptist. Um, and I want to quote him because he says this really well, and then I'm going to have some examples that I got, that I stole from him of this, and then we'll close. But he says, Christ's lordship must extend beyond our morality. It must seep into our bones and affect the way we live and move in the world as a work of divine creation. And for that, we need a habitual movement towards God must seep into our bones and affect the way that we live and move as a work of divine creation. Understanding ourselves as children changes the way that we interact with the world. Understanding God as our father and creator. So the question becomes, what do people say about your, as an individual, your conduct, your way of life? Not like, are you a good person, right? Check the nice, you can be a really nice, there's really, really nice people in the world that check all the morality boxes that know nothing of Jesus, that's not, the point is not to check all the morality boxes. It's not just to be a nice person. It's not just to be friendly, helpful. Those things are good. But it's to, to live our lives in every corner and every turn with every motivation, understanding the different way of life that, that emerges out of being a child of God. So here's some examples. Um, it's a little comical. It's, this is from Alan Noble. He talks about um, in worship when we do the passing of the peace, does anybody find the passing of the peace a little awkward? 
Yeah, it's okay to raise your hand. You're like, I don't like that. I hate the passing of the peace. I so I have to talk to people and shake their hands. And Alan's talking about this, and he makes just such a good point that this is when we do this, we don't do it just as a greeting time. We don't do it because it's awkward and we like awkward things. We, we do it because when we gather, it's so important that we reinforce that in God's way of life, we depend on one another. We don't come into this room just to be here to receive worship and then leave. We are actually in this together, that it matters that we're together. That's a subtle way of reinforcing a different way of life. We live in a community and a world that is, that is obsessed with individualism and individual identity. And as a church, God's way of life says that's not a thing. We are together, and the passing of the peace is a, is a sort of awkward weekly reminder that this isn't about me and my comfort. If it was about me and my comfort, I would stay at home and watch church on TV, but I don't. I come here to see you, even though I might not want to see you every week, because that's not, it's not about me and my choices and my individual preference. It's about being part of God's family, and I can't be part of God's family unless I'm here greeting you as part of the passing of the peace. You see how that little thing, if we understand what it is, reinforces a different way of life. It's why we do liturgy the way that we do it. Another example is um, that our base identity um, in America, in the West, is as consumers. We would define that as everything is an option, and I am defined by my choices. Alan Noble says, for many people to set aside their own path in order to conform to some external authority just doesn't seem comprehensible as a form of spiritual life. Like we're so obsessed on deciding our own way and making our own path and being the sum of our choices that the idea of molding ourselves to an external authority is like incomprehensible. That's why we gather together and do confession to remind ourselves that in God's way of life, we are not the sum of our own choices. We are not just our, we're not just options that we can do whatever we want, but we are in the family of God where dad's rules apply. Does that make sense? So the question becomes, there's so many other options that when we talk about time, like our, our lives are defined by um, school schedules and sports schedules, and that's all fine, but is there ways that we can disrupt that in order to help ourselves remind ourselves and become the kind of people that are holy based on what God says is important, not what, not what our former ways of ignorance say is important? Do we live the kind of lives where we intentionally roll up our sleeves <laughs> and lean in to God's way of life, knowing that it's going to look and feel a little bit different from the people around us? Things like prayer. There's, maybe there's nothing else that's less intelligible to our world than prayer. <laughs> Saying, I don't, depend, I don't depend on myself. Sabbath, habits of rest and silence to sit and say, I am not defined by my productivity. <laughs> Go tell that to your boss. Hey, it's fine. I'm not defined by my productivity. But at the same time, in God's economy, we're not defined by our productivity. And therefore, we need Sabbath rest to stop ourselves from becoming obsessed with our own productivity so that we can be the kind of people who live God's way of life. Holiness becomes this all-encompassing thing that, that transcends just morality and holiness or morality and ethics, but is a, an entire way of life. And look, we need each other to do that. We need to come into this room every week. We need to be out there together in order to actually live a different kind of life the family of God.
So I want to encourage you, like Peter does, roll up your sleeves. We like to just sit back and watch Netflix. I do that too. But Peter says, hey, gird up your loin. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be a student of God's word. Be a student of the world. What can we affirm? What, what, what does the world do that we can say, yes, that's great. That's God's way of life. What does the world around us do to say, no, no, that's not God's way of life. I'm going to do it differently. You got, it takes a lot of energy and thought. We've got to put, put our minds and energy into that to become obedient children of our Father. That's our, that's our first identity as a church the family of God. We want to be a place where that different way of life is actually embodied and lived out. That's going to take work. There's no like little list of things. These are just a few examples. So think about it for yourself. Think about it for your family. Think about it in, con- in our context. How are we living the holy life that God calls us to? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, once again allowing us to, uh, to know you to be called, as Peter says multiple times, to be uh, called into your presence and to call on you. And we thank you for that. And we, we pray that you would give us um, the energy and the wisdom and the passion to roll up our sleeves and to, to, uh, to live out the way of life that, that we have received from you uh, on the basis of the blood of Christ. So we pray, Father, that as we present our offerings to you, uh, that we... Uh, Again, see that as a way, uh, one of the many ways that we understand uh, and reinforce your way of life, that we don't own the things that we have, that you own them all. So as we give tonight, that you would reinforce that, that we would see all things as yours, and that we would be stewards of them for your glory and your kingdom. And we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.